Glory to the labor comrades, and welcome to the cabinet of fever dreams. Tonight's a tale of covert operations, secret bases, and worms. I used to do wet work for the Russian military. I am the sole survivor of the massacre. Was originally released October 19th, 2021, and is read to you tonight by Negship Ruminations, featuring the voices of Maya Sloka and Mike Jesus Langer, with musical backing by Carl Casey of White Bat Audio and Petr Mardian. The following tales belong to the United People's Institute of Science series, which will be unraveling on the podcast over the following weeks. Make sure to drop by later for the rest of the tales in this collection. New episodes come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With all that said, load your rifle, stub out your smoke, and prepare for a secret mission. No one has ever questioned my loyalty. In return, I have never questioned my orders. For decades, my comrades and I have enacted the will of the Kremlin in places where the Kremlin could not be seen. We shed our colors, our names, our identity. We were all willing to die in complete anonymity for the greater good of the homeland. The weight of the sacrifices we have made were immeasurable, but necessary. We stopped this land from descending into chaos. We immolated ourselves at the altar of order and control, hoping that one day we would be remembered as heroes. They're all dead. Everyone who came with me to this cursed corner of the globe is dead and I am left as the sole survivor of the horror we have witnessed. For nearly two decades, I have sat in this disgusting basement that smells of death, waiting for a word from my superiors. I have spent years waiting for some sort of debriefing, some sort of explanation for what had happened that fateful night. I expected someone to come back and bring me back home. I expected proper treatment for my wounds, a pension, at least a quiet recognition for my loyalty. But none came. My supervisors have abandoned me and left me to rot. I swore an oath to never speak of any of the operations I was a part of. But what good is a loyal man's oath when he swears it to thieves and liars? Perhaps me writing this post will result in an unfortunate fall from a window, or a heart attack delivered by the tip of an umbrella. If that is the case, then so be it. Every man must die, and I would rather die by state-sponsored violence than because of what lingers beneath my bandages. I used to do wet work for the Russian military. I am the sole survivor of the massacre. This is my story. It was the summer of 2002, and I'd been dispatched beyond the new borders to Central Asia. As usual, everyone on the team was given a local passport and false documentation. If we were to be caught, there would be no connection to a foreign government. For all intents and purposes, I belonged to a group of concerned local citizens who had access to high-grade military equipment. The area that we were meant to be concerned about 
was the building formerly known as the United People's Institute of Science, or as the superstitious locals called it, the In its former glory, the United People's Institute of Science was one of the most revered Soviet scientific installations. The greatest minds of the East all gathered in a single underground facility and researched concepts that would help the Soviets get an upper hand in the war. The Institute always operated on a relatively self-governing basis. Yet once the borders of our sphere of influence started to readjust in 1989, communication with the facility went completely dark. There were bigger problems than rogue scientific installations after the wall fell. When the Soviet Union finally collapsed, any paperwork concerning the Institute's existence went to rot in archives that few would ever visit. Official oversight of the Institute ceased to exist, yet the facility continued to operate in its own special way. The rumors were a mainstay of local gossip, stories of insane scientists, of disappearances of strange creatures roaming the woods. Nothing particularly alarming for an uneducated community next to a secret research facility. Aside from the Institute, the only other notable things in the nearest city were a handful of factories and an old burned-down hotel. Bored people in desolate conditions tend to have colorful imaginations. For decades, the rumors were ignored. After 91, however, the talk about the Institute changed. For one, it was no longer referred to as the Institute. To the locals, the building was now known as the The rumors, much like the name, changed in their form. The locals no longer spoke of vague monsters and ethereal plots. They spoke of specific missing people, of livestock showing up bloodless in the fields, of a specific part of the forest from which none returned. The locals' abstract stories hardened into matching descriptions. When digital cameras became cheap enough to be a hobbyist item, the photographs started to emerge. They were grainy, and there were no guarantees that they weren't doctored. Yet at that point, this started to catch the attention of the decision makers. The rumors caught the eye of those in power. Yet on closer inspection, there was something more concerning about the Institute. According to the few official documents that could be unearthed, the United People's Institute of Science was not just a research facility. There were two missile silos attached to the structure. This so-called was deemed a threat to national security. The channels from the provincial government pointed to a culture of drunkenness and ineptitude. We were brought to the city without any express permission from anyone noteworthy. Our mission was to assess and take control of the If we were to be caught or killed, we would be forever known as very concerned citizens. We were organized into a 12-man team. 
Our handlers set us up in the basement of a hospice. I didn't recognize any of the men present, except for one, the Sibiriak. Two years prior, we had both been part of a particularly messy operation near the Mongolian border, where he had saved my life. I have met a lot of dangerous men throughout my career, but the Sibiriak towered over them all, both in stature and in capacity for violence. The directives for our mission were vague at best, but knowing that that Siberian giant was on our side eased my mind. I had seen him kill. As long as he was on the same side as me, I considered myself safe. Even though we were in the basement of the hospice, the cries of the sick still reached our ears. I joined the rest of the team in a friendly game of cards and some light drinking, using a radio to drown out the wails of the dying. The mood in the basement was reasonably calm. Everyone was blowing off steam before the mission, with one exception. The Sibiriak did not join us for the card game or the vodka. He simply sat at the top of the stairs, listening to the pain of strangers. It was as if he knew we would soon join them in their torture. The United People's Institute of Science was a particularly subterranean structure with only a guardhouse and a small lobby with an elevator shaft leading down. The plan was simple. Two men were to covertly make their way to the guardhouse, neutralize the sole member of security, and then the rest of the team was meant to advance toward the Institute under the cover of night. The operation was a mess from the beginning. The two men chosen to deal with the security guard were young and indecisive, and the security guard himself acted erratically. Most civilians immediately cooperated at the sight of a rifle. The security guard did not. As soon as the two greenhorns approached, he started yelling about them having no authority here. Instead of surrendering, he picked up the phone and called his supervisors. By the time they shot him, he had alerted the Institute to trouble. The monotone voice of the commanding officer in our earpieces ordered us to advance on the facility. It was a pitch-dark night, with not even a hint of the moon in the sky. Yet the night vision goggles turned the incomprehensible dark world into a navigatable sea of grainy-green. The Institute was located in the middle of a dense forest. Yet the land around the actual structure was completely barren. There was no cover. We were like heavily armored lambs moving toward a dead, quiet slaughterhouse. An announcement of our arrival was not optimal, but the sort of work I was in rarely went according to plan. Robbed of the element of surprise, we moved on the Institute from opposing directions in two groups of five. I was in the back of the eastern formation with the Sibiriak directly in front of me. The hulking giant offset any discomfort I had at the announcement of our arrival. I thought myself safe. As we moved across the dead ground, my earpiece sounded off with the commander's voice and the occasional whispered apology from the guardhouse group. No movement from the Institute. For a moment, I found myself experiencing something akin to calmness. Then, I heard a voice in my earpiece that didn't belong there. 
Tavarishi, turn back. A female voice. A calm voice. A motherly voice. Tavarishi, turn back, or in the name of I will be forced to take drastic action. No one stopped. The fact that an outsider was able to speak on our frequency was highly unusual. But we knew better than to pay attention to orders that didn't come from our superior. We moved to the backup frequency. The voice followed, but its tone had changed. Tovarishi, she said in a voice so cold and sharp that it would make even the Siberian before me twitch. This is your last warning. If you keep approaching the Kundur, you will find a fate worse than death. Turn back, and never return. I have never disobeyed an order. I take pride in the fact that I am a reliable member of the armed forces, but that voice... There was something unearthly about it. Something horribly malicious that I could not comprehend. My rifle started to shake. My steps became uneasy. For the first time since I enlisted, I found myself truly disturbed. Davari. I ripped my earpiece out. Even now, as I write this, I cannot explain what I thought becoming death to the voice would achieve. I ripped out my earpiece in blind instinct in a frenzied attempt to retreat from that which had poisoned my soul with fear. The Sibiriak kept moving. In the field of coarse green, I could see the rest of the troop progressing as well. I was only a meter or two behind the formation, but it was clear that I was the only one who had lost their composure. With shame in my heart, I tried to catch up with the rest of the group. A dark, horrid voice had boomed through my head. You have been warned. You have refused to see reason. Now you shall pay the price. But my earpiece was out. It was as if the foreign voice had been lodged into my skull. Before my mind had even managed to properly register the psychic intrusion, there was something else to contend with. The ground beneath us shook. The earth swelled in a dark circle around the Institute and caved in. I saw my comrades fall into a sudden ditch of murky water. My nose filled up with the smell of an infected wound. Whatever liquid they had fallen into was potent with filth. If I had been standing behind the Sibiriak as I was meant to, I would have fallen as well. I would have ended up in that same horrid water as everyone else did. My moment of hesitation is the only reason that I survived that night. The Sibiriak screamed. As terrified as I was, I quickly reached down and offered him a helping hand. The man had saved my life a couple of years prior. It was only fitting that I would help him out of the ditch that he had fallen into. Getting the giant out of the water proved to be much more strenuous than expected. His weight was quite a burden to contend with and much like the rest of the team, he was thrashing around in the water, unable to stand up on his own. To help him out, I had to descend into the ditch myself, and plant one foot into the water for leverage. This helped the Sibiriak up, 
but as soon as my boot was submerged in the water, I could understand all of the thrashing about. Just a bit of the dark water had gotten into my boot, but the pain was instant. The liquid was cold, but the moment it soaked through my sock, it was as if I was standing on burning coals. The stench of sickness and the pain seized me so strongly that I nearly vomited. And I kept my composure and crawled out of the ditch among the rest of my comrades. Our commander was yelling orders for us to advance on the facility, yet his orders were soon drowned out. You have angered forces which you cannot comprehend. You will feel the wrath of the- The doors of the facility flew open. The instinct to open fire came as quickly as the order did. Bright flashes broke through the world of green. The quiet forest filled with the sound of gunfire. Yet by the time our rifles went quiet, nothing had changed. We stood there in silence facing down the cement building in the middle of a forest with nothing but the echo of our guns to keep us company. That's when I noticed that the Sibiriak was shaking. One of his hands was off his weapons and scratching across his back. He wasn't the only one. The rest of the team, even those approaching the Institute from the opposite side, were all clawing at their bodies. Weapons started to fall to the ground. The scratching amplified to manic fits. They were no longer a group of soldiers ready for combat. The Sibiriak turned around and faced me. I have seen many things throughout my life. Things that would force most civilians into eternal sleeplessness. Yet nothing compared to the sight of the Sibiriak's face that night. His usually vacant gray eyes were filled to the brim with fear. His face was covered in dark red splotches that seemed like the aftermath of some horrid childhood accident. Out of those crimson marks came writhing life. Worms, frenzied worms with small black eyes stemmed from his face, pulling further and further out of his body. He opened his mouth to scream, but his jaw it, too, was filled with the parasites. The Sibiriak was not the only one. All around me, my comrades were trying to rip away the foreign life crawling in their skin. They tried to scream, yet all their wide-open mouths let out were whimpers and more of those writhing maggots. Tabarish, you have not heeded my warnings, and now you will pay the price. The voice boomed into my skull. The is not to be trifled with. Something squeezed its way out of the doors of the Institute. I raised my rifle to fire. Yet my eyes slipped down to the ground. The thing was moving towards our group, but I couldn't. I, I just couldn't stand to look at it. It moved towards us. I could see my comrades were suffering. I could see they needed help. Yet I couldn't face that horrid creature that had left this cursed place. I ran. I ran as fast as I could to save my life. Flesh, bone, blood. As I looked over my shoulder, I couldn't tell where the remnants of my comrades ended and where the beast began. 
I ran blindly into the forest, hoping that whatever was killing my brothers at arms wouldn't follow me. It didn't. Yet, as my struggling breath reached its limits, another problem presented itself. Even though my body was shivering with adrenaline, the burning pain in my foot was starting to make itself known again. I hid next to a forest stream, with my rifle at the ready, and kicked off my boot. Beneath my sock, a mess of life squirmed. The worms. They were the same exact worms that consumed the Sibiriac just moments before. They were consuming my foot and slowly spreading toward my calves. Instinct. The same instinct that forced me to rip out my earpiece was now driving me to act. I found a piece of wood in the stream and fished out my combat knife. I placed the wood in my mouth and bit down. I knew what I had to do, but I also knew that the beast that was lurking by the would hear me and all of my pain would be worthless. The details of how I made my way back to the hospice escaped me. My handler kept me on enough morphine for the whole month after the mission to stay a distant memory. I loosely recall pulling my body through the jagged gravel of a road toward the city. I loosely recall being loaded in the back of a car. I loosely recall the surgery to amputate the rest of my leg. What I do remember with absolute clarity is my handler thanking me for my service and asking me to stay put until someone came to retrieve me. That was almost two decades ago. I recall that promise with sharp memory because I have thought about it each and every night. I have been loyal. I have waited. I have even tried to establish contact with the local embassy. Yet no one would claim me. For years I have been a man living in the basement of a hospice, praying that I would not have to die here. Yet those illusions are starting to leave me. Beneath my bandages I can feel it again. The worms. The amputation has only slowed their progress. Beneath my bandages I can feel them wriggling again. They have come to finish what they started. During the... Massacre. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Blake J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kuss, Bob Condor, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, and Mr. Creepypasta. If you'd like to join these fine people and support the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Langer. That's all for tonight, comrade. See you here next episode for another tale from the United People's Institute of Science. Glory to labor.